So I've been noticing a lot more chatter about electric vehicles. Okay, do you have an electric vehicle yet? Our roads are getting a whole lot quieter as we continue to race toward an all-electric future. This is not the beginning. I know what you're thinking. Electric, it's not for you. All told, my administration is investing more than $135 billion to advance America's electric vehicle future. I even rented an electric car recently for a story I was working on, which was actually a lot of fun. And all of that got me curious about what's inside these vehicles. So naturally, I tried to go see an electric car battery in person. But I truly forgot that these things are massive. It's not like a gas-powered car where you can just lift the hood and look at an engine and kind of instinctively understand how the car moves. These batteries are like the entire underbelly of the vehicle. And basically everyone we spoke to said it would just be too complicated to pull a car apart and show us. So now I'm doing what I very often do. I'm looking at pictures of these batteries online. And I have to say, this is not a particularly exciting visual. And if I'm being perfectly honest, I kind of have no idea what I'm looking at here. Completely. I mean, I think that the technology is fascinating and super complicated, and I'm admittedly not the biggest car person myself. This is Rachel Chasen, West Africa Bureau Chief. But what I do know is that most electric vehicles are powered by lithium-ion batteries, and the idea that drove a lot of our reporting was that electric vehicles require sort of way more mineral input just to, to operate, to go than traditional gas-powered vehicles. She and a bunch of other reporters at The Post have been looking into how electric vehicles are made. And that meant exploring minerals. So these minerals include cobalt, lithium, nickel, bauxite, and manganese, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Rachel, I have to ask, why did you and a team of reporters decide to investigate electric vehicles? Like, what were you hoping to uncover? Yeah, so I think that the the idea behind this series, which involved reporters from Indonesia to the Democratic Republic of the Congo to Afghanistan, to reporting sort of focused on the accountability side in D.C., was the idea that we're really experiencing what is like a green revolution and that electric vehicles are going to be at the center of these efforts to fight climate change going forward. And so it's really important that we understand where they're coming from, and that we sort of scrutinize the whole process and any sort of collateral damage that happens as a result of the production of these vehicles. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Chris Velasco, your guest host. It's Tuesday, September 5th. As the world transitions to electric cars, states like California and New York are moving to ban the sale of new gas-powered cars over the next decade. Meanwhile, President Biden wants at least half of new car sales to be electric by 2030. But this race to reduce our carbon footprint has some hidden tolls. This week, we're looking at what it takes to make an electric vehicle. We're traveling to some unexpected places and discovering the human, environmental, and geopolitical costs of this production line. And we'll walk through how we, as consumers, 
can square this with the very real benefits that these cars have on the environment. Today, we're starting in South Africa, where we'll hear about the hidden toll on workers in that first leg of production at manganese mines. Rachel, you set out to learn about manganese, which has always felt like the most fun sounding of the minerals. Like it sounds the most like a pasta that I would like to eat. But what is it exactly? And why is it used in manufacturing electric cars? So I had never exactly thought about manganese as like a pasta, uh, but that's a good one. What it is, is this gray mineral that's common and it's not too expensive, which is what makes it really appealing for automakers. It's already found in about half of rechargeable batteries and it's used in those batteries to act as a stabilizer. And the biggest reserves of manganese in the world are found in South Africa, which is why I was heading there for this reporting. And just to paint a picture of this area, it's like one of the most sparsely populated sort of vast parts of South Africa. And where we were was on the edge of the Kalahari Desert. Um, And so you have to imagine this like, just like massive expanses of land. And all of a sudden you'll see this big sort of mound of gray coming out of the ground. And that's how you know that you're coming up to a manganese mine. So I realize you weren't actually able to go inside a manganese mine. None of the companies responded to your request to do that. But did you get a chance to talk to any of the workers? Yeah, so we talked to dozens of current and former manganese miners. And one of them who we met was this man named Dirk Euster, who is 66 now and moved to this part of South Africa from Cape Town years ago. Uh, And he said that he used to really, really love this job. My work was actually my life. I was highly trained to do the work, and I did it to perfection. He used to work as a technician in this job that is really specific, um, actually, and also meant really high levels of manganese exposure. He was the technician overseeing the maintenance of air conditioners in mining trucks. And what that meant was that he worked with compressed air, blowing the manganese dust out of these air cons so that the trucks could work and continue to transport the manganese. And he would come home at the end of a workday just completely covered in this gray-black dust. Your nose is black inside, your teeth is black, your tongue... Everything is black inside. I mean, you're covered with it. And he did that for a number of years, but it was about 10 years ago that he started to notice these symptoms and had this feeling that something wasn't quite right. What was happening to him? At first, he started to notice a little bit of trembling, a loss of balance. And this came about when he was at work. He would find it difficult to sort of maneuver his way around the trucks because he, he felt like he was losing his balance. He started to lose a little bit of feeling in one of his hands. But it wasn't actually until a supervisor made a comment that he realized sort of how bad things had gotten and how much things had changed. It was one Monday morning, and when I came to the office for the safety meeting, he asked me, why is, why is my hand shaking like that? I said, well, I don't know. He said, aren't you hangover? I said, no, I don't think. I'm not a drinker. Dirk was trembling so much that the supervisor thought that he was hungover and asked him if he was the South African uh, sort of slang for that is babalos. And after that, they sent him to the clinic doctor who diagnosed Dirk with Parkinson's disease. And they put him on medication for Parkinson's disease. 
I was on that for about two years, but it didn't have any effect on me. No, none whatsoever. According to them, the shaking will be less and all that. Actually, the shaking in my hand got worse and not better. So that, that meditation was definitely not effective. And Dirk also knew there were some things he was experiencing, like irritability, aggression, memory loss, that he didn't think necessarily lined up with Parkinson's. So he had questions. So he's not fully invested in this diagnosis. Did he go see someone else, you know, seek out a second opinion? Yes, he definitely did. I think that he actually sought out a number of different opinions and ultimately ended up in the office of Dr. Tidu in this other little mining town nearby of Kutu. And he diagnosed Dirk with something called manganism, which is sort of the most extreme version of manganese poisoning. Wait, so the mines were making Dirk sick? Yeah, so actually as far back as 1837, which I was surprised to learn, researchers and doctors have actually known that manganese can be toxic at really high levels. And that's because when it, the, the particles are really small, whether it's through mining or through smelting or through other sort of processes, workers can inhale or ingest them. And then that ends up, or it can end up in the bloodstream. And after that, it gets, or can get, deposited in the basal ganglia, which is the part of your brain that controls balance and movement. Um, so that is how manganese mining can go from something that is not at all dangerous to something that it, that can be. So what exactly is manganism and how widespread a problem is it? Yeah, so manganism is the most extreme version of manganese poisoning. Researchers say that workplace conditions have gotten much better since this was first identified. And so full-blown manganism is rare, but what is more common, researchers warn, are these more subtle symptoms that a lot of the manganese miners uh, that we talked to discussed with us. You know, it's, it's forgetting stuff. It's having a slowness of movement. It's having a slight loss of balance. Um, and th- these subtle things are harder to diagnose, especially when it's not something that's super well-known or super discussed. Um, but one recent study showed that 26% of miners in Hadazel, which is another small mining town, experienced Parkinsonian-like symptoms, even though their median age was 42. Yeah. And I can't quite, like, I'm still stuck on on Dirk, too. You know, he's been, it's been over a decade, I think, since... You said he's been diagnosed. What's his life like now? Yeah, so Dirk's doctor told him years ago that he just couldn't work at the mines anymore, that it wasn't safe. And so when Dirk described his life for us recently, it was in very blunt and very sad terms, where he basically told us that these days what he feels like is a caged bird. That was the end of my career. So um, for 12 years, I'm sitting in this house. I can't move. I can't go out. Nowhere. So he's 66 now, but in some ways he seems much older. His balance is off, his hands do tremble. He says he forgets things as simple as the TV show he's watched the night before. He really struggles with the things that we don't even think about, like handing a cup of coffee to his wife. I can't even open a soda bottle. You know those plastic cap soda bottles? I can't turn it open. I must take it to my wife so she can open it. He doesn't do things like drive anymore because of issues related to mobility, but also irritability. He says he gets sort of angry with people on the roads and he doesn't trust himself to drive. Um, and he's just, he's really scared. 
that more people aren't paying attention to this issue, that it's not more discussed. A lot of the miners we talked to said that there weren't warnings given and that they didn't have a lot of information about this. It wasn't even mentioned. It wasn't even mentioned. They don't mention it. They don't mention if it's a danger. There's no signs the miner tells you it's dangerous. Nobody tell you about it. They keep quiet as far as possible and nobody know about it. What Dirk told us is that he was not aware that manganese could be toxic until after he left the mine and after he started experiencing symptoms. But he was given a mask that he wore as he was doing this work, which involved very, very close contact with manganese. But what he said was that it was just a a very thin mask that didn't effectively block the manganese. Did the mining company that Dirk worked for do or say anything after he was diagnosed? I asked a spokesman for South 32, which is the company that now runs the mine where Dirk worked, about his case. And the spokesman declined to comment on individual cases, but he did say in a statement that the company, which is based in Australia, takes proactive steps to reduce the risk by applying controls in line with international best practice. And that at least for certain work groups, that means the use of protective equipment and dust suppression systems and ventilation in mines that are underground. Um, So the spokesman also said that if workers display any symptoms of, of occupational illness, we take it seriously, and that after screening, they would be sent for medical evaluation, which, as Dirk told us, he was. Dirk said that what he fears is that this issue with manganese is sort of like the next version of asbestos, um, which wasn't banned in South Africa, despite the well-known effects on people's health until years after it was banned in other parts of the world. They knew, they knew, but they still minded here. The people still got infested with that uh, dust that went into their lungs and, and they don't care. I'm sure that's the way this manganese story is going to go, exactly the same. What he says is like, do we really have to wait until people start dying from this or can we start paying more attention now? After the break, we hear more about the toll this work takes on laborers in South Africa and how difficult it's been for them to get answers. We'll be right back. Rachel, can you kind of give me a, a broader sense of how the electric vehicle industry has responded to all of this? And I guess if if mining manganese is so dangerous to human life, it sounds, why can't we use something else? What was really striking to us about this reporting was that there hasn't even been a big discussion about sort of pivoting to a different material because there hasn't been that much discussion of the dangers that manganese does pose. When I came back from South Africa, I talked with a number of analysts at sort of the top firms who are studying the EV market about this question. And what they told me is that the dangers for workers are not really on the industry's radar at this point. You know, one battery research analyst told us the focus is on how to meet demand in a way that is cost beneficial. The more worker-focused questions and concerns are lower on the food chain, which sort of summed it up. 
So it sounds like manganese has been mined in South Africa for a really long time, like well before it was even used in electric vehicles. So why don't people, why don't miners know about these health effects before they go in? It's possible that part of the problem and the sort of lack of knowledge is related to just how big of an industry this is in South Africa and how sort of important for people's livelihoods manganese mining is. So obviously I reached out to the the companies before we were in the area. Again, most of them didn't want to talk or didn't respond. But as we were going around, we had sort of a series of interesting interactions that spoke to the importance of this industry. I had one doctor who, before I arrived, told me he'd be happy to talk and he had a patient who had had manganism and who had died. And then when I got to the area, he changed his mind and he said, actually, I can't talk to you at all. You need to be talking to the mines. When we would show up at some of these mines, I would ask the guards or the receptionists to put me in touch with the the doctors at the clinics. And at one point, one of those doctors heard that I was a reporter and just hung up the phone. And, you know, even Dirk's doctor, Tidu, who has been willing to talk about this, he told us, I'm really sticking my neck out talking about this issue. So I think that it's possible that sort of the the importance of this industry sometimes prevents a, a big examination of the industry itself. Well, these kinds of tight-lipped responses that you kept running into, is this what miners kind of experienced when they went to the companies they work for and confronted them about their health issues? Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, so when we were talking with former miners, especially, they would tell us that they, they had had problems, that they worried, they weren't sure, but that they worried were related to manganese and they would go to the to the mines, and they would ask for medical records, and they wouldn't get anything back, and that was really just so frustrating for them. And then what was also really interesting was at one manganese smelter outside of Johannesburg, where manganese is smelted to make steel, there was a group of five workers who doctors said developed manganism back in the early 2000s. And those workers ultimately did receive settlements from the company that owned that smelter, which at the time was called BHP Billiton. But what was interesting was that those who received the settlements, their lawyer told me, were all white and were all in supervisory positions and all had very like extreme symptoms. But what the lawyer also said was that there was this bigger group of workers, most of whom were Black and most of whom were in lower-level positions, and who said that they had also experienced symptoms of manganese poisoning. But those workers never got any sort of compensation And what we found was that they actually still meet every Tuesday morning in this little community center. And there they talk about their symptoms, they talk about what they're experiencing, and they try to figure out if there's any way to get compensation. And one of the workers who we met was this man named Ezekiel Makanya, who used to be the leader of this group, but who unfortunately now is too sick to attend the meetings and really can barely even get out of bed. Yeah, thank you. Okay. It's a pretty emotional. Yeah. It is very much. So when I met him, we were talking through a translator, but he was also a little bit hard to understand because it's gotten really hard for him in recent years to speak. Um, but it was also really clear how much he wanted to talk to us. You poison, so you yeah. realize that this is poison. Uh, mm. 
And then he started getting sick. Mm, very sick. And so he had these symptoms similar to Dirk's that were just really confusing. He started falling. Symptoms is too. Second symptom. Sweating. Symptoms is Third symptom. Shaking. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so. The fourth one. Mm. Stroke. He had a stroke. And no one could tell him what was going on, even when he went to the nurses at this smelter and asked, what's happening here? Like, my friends are getting sick and they shouldn't be. I don't feel right. After everything you've seen and after speaking to everyone you've spoken to, does it feel like manganese mining is as safe as it's going to get? Is there still room for improvement? What, what do workers have to look forward to? I think that it's one of those things that, that has to be talked about more and that has to be sort of studied further because I think the answer isn't clear at this point. You know, Manganese mining itself, a lot of that is happening in South Africa in addition to many, many other places in the world because, like we said, it's common. In terms of the the refining, that next step, that's not where the vast majority of it is happening. The vast majority of it is happening in China where it's much, much harder uh, for reporters to get access and where analysts told us it, it can sometimes be a real question mark about the conditions. So one researcher I talked to hadn't been back recently, but he had been at manganese refineries in China a few years ago now. And he described, again, you know, really difficult conditions and people not taking very good care. He described one worker stripping off her mask as she entered the facility. And so I think it's hard to say definitively sort of what can be done to make the industry safer or if it's as safe as it's going to get, because I think that there hasn't been sort of enough recognition of the problem from the industry and then studying of the problem at these various levels. So I I have had a question in the back of my head this entire time, and I suspect some of our listeners might too, but, you know, what does this mean if I own an electric car or am thinking about buying an electric car? Like, should I feel guilty? What, what do you recommend people do with this new information? It's a great question. And I think that the goal with this story and with the series was not to make people feel guilty about their EVs. You know, I think that the benefits of electric vehicles are many, um, especially when you're looking at the history of gas-powered vehicles and sort of the damage that has been wrought by them. But I think that what, what we wanted people to do and what is sort of increasingly important as this industry takes off is to really look at the impact in the places that are most directly affected by this industry. And sometimes they're not the places that you necessarily think about when you're buying your EV, but the, the implications are really vast. I think that the, the goal of all of that reporting is not to make people feel bad about their electric vehicles, but to really make sure that this, this industry, as it continues to take off, is as accountable to consumers as it can be. Rachel, thank you so much for talking to me about this today. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Rachel Chasen is The Post's West Africa Bureau Chief. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. 
Today's show was produced by Eliza Dennis. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Monica Campbell. Thanks to Alana Gordon, Alan Cypress, and Langiwe Motong. If you love the show or feel like you really learned something today, help other people discover it by leaving a rating on Spotify or a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm your guest host, Chris Velasco. Tomorrow, in part two of our series about the hidden tolls of electric cars, we're diving into the race for lithium in Afghanistan. <laughs>